Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and you are very, very welcome to a special episode of Hello, Steve-O podcast, one that I put a lot of work into creating and that I'm really excited to give to you uh, guys. Now, I know a lot of you do come to me for the comedy and you have come to me because of the crack and um, you've seen me on the stage and acting the Aegis and all that kind of stuff. But this is something a little bit different. So I do want to preface the whole episode by saying that to you guys because um, it's not a crack episode and it's not full of fun, but it is, for me, I think it's a really important episode and that's why I wanted to make it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of you will know that the great politician uh, and leader and um, activist John Hume passed away. And it was all over the Irish media. But the reason I felt uh, I wanted to make this podcast was that I had a very strong feeling that a lot of my peers, um, a lot of my generation and the generations below me and some of the generations older than me did not know a lot about John Hume. There's a lot of what's going on in uh, the Republic of Ireland that um, with regards to the troubles and the politics that happened in Northern Ireland, there's definitely been a lot of kind of a little bit of turning a blind eye to it, not getting involved in it, not wanting to know about it. But in particular, this man's life, I thought, is so important and what he achieved was so amazing and he is absolutely inspirational. What he achieved in his life was, they were huge achievements, achievements alongside great activists and great people like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. And I don't say that frivolously, that these are facts. This is an Irish man that grew up on, on, on our, uh, our island, excuse me, and um, he achieved great uh, feats in civil rights activism, in, in getting peace in Northern Ireland. He achieved things at the same time when the civil rights movement was happening in the US. He, was, he took the inspiration from Martin Luther King and brought it to his home of Derry and achieved equal rights for for Catholic minorities and in in Northern Ireland, sorry, they weren't minorities, but for the Catholic community that were uh, being oppressed by the way the system was worked there at the time. He's the only man or woman, he's the only person in the world to ever have held the Nobel Peace Prize as well as the Martin Luther Prize for Peace and the Mahatma Gandhi Prize for Peace. Nobody has ever done that. And that says a lot. Nobody in the world has ever done that. And that says a lot for what he achieved. A working class boy from the bog side of Derry who 
went on to educate himself, became an activist, a politician, and really did amazing things in achieving peace after decades of brutal violence and killing in Northern Ireland. He's a very inspirational man. And on this podcast, I talk about him with uh, Jude Sharvin. Now, Jude is a native of Belfast. She was born when the Troubles were going on and uh, she's lived through a lot of the Troubles and she's been a follower of um, John Hume and a fan of John Hume. And he's been a leader to people like Jude and her family in times of great oppression and when really bad things were happening to her family, people like John Hume was the light at the end of the tunnel for them. So what I really like about this podcast is that it's a conversation with somebody and a a lot of it you might have heard his life in the papers anyway, but by talking to somebody who has been through this time, who has um, suffered through the times of the Troubles, it really gives you a different picture, a different feeling of what this man meant to people in Northern Ireland, in particular nationalists, in particular the Catholic community, but to everybody who now in Northern Ireland can live in a Northern Ireland and to all of us in Ireland who can live in a country where there is peace and there is no war and there is no killing. So thank you so much to Jude uh, for coming on and chatting with me about it. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It is something different to what I what I normally do. But I really wanted to make it. I hope you enjoy it. If you're from outside of Ireland, if you're from the UK, if you're from the US, we've got people listening in Australia, all sorts of countries, Finland, Malta, wherever. This is this guy is inspirational and it's, it should be a, an exciting thing to listen to, an inspirational man having achieved what he's achieved. So I hope you enjoy it, even if you are completely ignorant to any of the politics or any of the troubles that happened in Northern Ireland. I really do hope you enjoy it. The piece here starts off with a few words from John Hume in his speech when he was receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. And then it'll cut to the conversation between myself and Jude, and uh, there will be other bits uh, from John's speech intercut in between the conversation. Apologies for the sound on my end, the sound of my voice in this conversation. Um, There was a little bit of a mix-up with the sound there, so my voice doesn't sound great on it, but you can hear everything clearly. And I really do hope you enjoy a tribute to John Hume. The vast majority of conflicts in the world are about the same thing. They're about difference. Whether difference is your religion, or your nationality, or your race. And the answer is the same. One which we always use, that difference is an accident of birth. It's a very simple message to put across. But when you keep putting it across to a community, it eventually gets through. And that since difference is an accident of birth, one could have been born into the other community. There's not two people in the whole world who are the same. Difference is of the essence of humanity. Therefore, difference is not something that one should fight about. It's something that we should respect. Jude, thank you so much for joining me. It's been, it's been a, what's it been like? It's been a sad week in general in Ireland, but what's it been like? in Belfast for you guys the past week since John's passing. Yeah, it, it has. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on to um, talk about the one and only John Hume. 
Um, yeah, as you say, he's he's just passed, just left us. It's kind of, I guess, reading the press and watching the funeral and listening to the radio. And I would listen to a lot of radio from um, from down south um, anyway. But it, it was kind of um, reminiscent of the time when we lost Seamus Heaney. Yes. You know, another great dairy another man. Another great dairy great, man, uh, yes. Yeah, another great intellect and um, someone who'd given us all a lot of hope um, through his writing, just as John did through his politics and his, yes. um, just his general way of being, his kind of um, approach to things and his approach to life. And it kind of leaves you with this, I don't know, is it almost like a fear you have when these great men pass? You're like, oh, okay, yeah. God, who's going to lead us now? You know, yes. who's going to... Yeah. Show the way because, as you know, in the north, politics has been in a bit of a stalemate for quite mm. some time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So there's almost sometimes—is um, it even like a like a hankering to go back to those times when at least political engagement felt real and felt like something was was happening, um, rather than this honestly three, four years of stalemate that we've had in the north? John Hume. I wanted to start off by by quoting. Um, another great Anglo-Irish man and political pamphleteer, Jonathan Swift, yes. um, who said that vision is the art of seeing the invisible. Um, and I read someone in, in your papers last week had, had quoted that, so I've stolen it, basically. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm, admitting my, uh, I'm admitting stealing that. But to quote Swift, who obviously wrote Gulliver's Travels, there's a lot in Gulliver that you could equate with Hume. You know, he was yeah. a giant of a man yeah. in a land of very small minds. Yeah, um, that is mine, not someone else's. So <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not all. Um, what's that word I'm searching for? But because I'm plagiarism. My memories of Hume began when I was very young. I guess the earliest memories I have are of in our house in Belfast, um, and my mum would have been playing records around the house a lot of the time. She loved her music, so me and my sisters, you know, we'd be singing, dancing dancing along to things like Glenn Campbell, Simon and Garfunkel, nice. and then Irish songs of civil rights. You know, so we'd be going from the Wichita lineman to Cecilia and right on through to the Long March or the nice. Burnt Hall at Ambush. Right. Um, and other such classics with our parents <laughs> singing along and like a state of near euphoria is what I, I, I see when I look back. Um, because it was, it was a very emotional time. People were afraid. So there was a big outlet for all this fear and loathing through the music and through the civil rights marches and um what, age, fairly, what age were you can i ask when you were when those civil rights marches and stuff were happening yeah well, I, was, I was born at the end of 1967 so right. um i guess we would have been playing those records in our house in the early 70s um yes. around the time when internment had been introduced and so it was post-civil rights but my parents, for my parents and their generation, and for, I would say, many, that would have been typical of many Catholic households um, in the early 70s, that, yes. that there was that, that feeling of someone like Hume had arrived on the scene um, and he was going to take it somewhere else for them, you know, for people who'd been living um, in really in conditions of poverty and deprivation um, all of which were sanctioned by what they felt at that time was a British and unionist um, agenda. I think that's what, what a lot of uh, people, certainly of my generation, possibly here, who have not been necessarily, it's not fair to say of everybody, but not been aware and alive to, it was a civil rights issue that was going on for the Catholic communities in Northern Ireland. It was issues such as 
There was no such thing at the time as one man, one vote. There was a vote per household. And the unionists ran the councils, for example. And so Catholics couldn't get housing, but Protestants got housing when there was more Catholics that needed it. Than so all these types of things that were going on, they were basic human rights issues that were going they were, on. Exactly. That thing about the housing, you know, that was really unions didn't want the electoral landscape to change. You know, right. so they were controlling who was getting housing where because housing was going hand in hand with, with voting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he was very big on that. And obviously, um, a great community activist, you know, um, as his own father was when he was growing up in Darius. So he, he was born into quite a poor family himself. Yes. In fact, the 30 years he spent living in, in one room in, a, in his grandmother's house before mm -hmm. they got a place of their own. So he was coming from a place of a deep understanding about these issues and what life was actually like for people living in that way. Um, so yeah, he came to civil rights through his involvement with the Derry Housing Association and trying to, to find homes for people. Um, something I think your listeners might be able to empathize with currently because of the housing situation, which is very prevalent in the South of Ireland Absolutely, right now. Lots yes, of people yes. living in, families living in hotel rooms yes, and all that kind of um, sadness and, and basic lack of human rights also that is you know still um obviously a current thing mm, mm. so yeah he, he came into civil rights from the from the housing his housing um association background but also from um leading up the charge to try and have a university in Derry. that's right yes. um yeah because he saw obviously bringing that university to the city would have brought hope and jobs and mm. all these things that go hand in hand with I guess, self-esteem yes. and the confidence of a city and the confidence of its people. Um, you know, so yeah, he, he was really coming into it, I guess, from looking at what was happening in the US and the civil rights movement there, which again is something that's very contemporary. Yes. Um, he was a big fan of Martin Luther King Jr., um, something, that something that was really alive because I think sometimes we kind of think of these things disconnected history kind of like Martin Luther King was this great thing but the exact same type of human rights issues were happening right here and at the same time Hume took what Luther King was doing and said okay I can make that happen in non-violent ways and started the civil rights movement then so it was all happening at the same time that's exactly it, you know, and he very quickly realized the power of television and yes. he saw those images coming in from yes. across the world and he thought, well, why not? Why can't we harness that kind of thing here mm -hmm. and let's get out there with our message as well that what mm. was happening in the North here was very much a civil rights issue. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, it's hard for us to imagine really what it, what it must have been like, but I was wondering you to think about, so say, so say for example, the issue of internment, which was huge for the Catholic population and was one that Hume went out and led marches against, etc. So you can imagine if you're asleep in your bed in Dublin there some night, Stephen, and the yeah. forces of the state arrive, kick your door in, yeah. kick you away from your family, lock you up without charge um, or without any notion of charging you with anything for, mm. you know, you were locked up for as long as they really wanted to lock you away yes. for. Yeah. Um, so leaving, you know, families kind of broken. Um, I mean, I met a girl in America once a few years, uh, in the 90s it was, and she told me that she'd grown up, she didn't really know her dad or her grandfather because they'd both been interned um, right. for a long time. And by the time they came home, again, they were kind of traumatized, lots of mental health issues, 
they were kind of broken men. Yes. You know, hit, hit the bottle big and then the families broke up. So you can imagine that being replicated across, you know, not just Belfast, but Derry and across the north. Yes. You know, it really was more than just, it was much more than, than just lifting a man in the middle of the night and then locking him away. It really taking a man's whole life away, you know, and his family's life away. And I guess the great thing about Hume, to bring it back to him, was that he was so deeply empathetic mm. um, that to me, when I think of him, he sort of gave up his own life as well. Yeah. In many ways, you know, he could have just had a regular life like, like I have with my kids or you with yours, yeah. you know, that you just do normal family things, which I'm sure they did do, but also a lot of his time and a lot of his life was given up to politics and leading us eventually to the incredible place of peace. The peace is the, is the really fundamental uh, thing about Hume, that he was always 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 against violence and in a time when these civil rights issues were going on when he starts the civil where he gets involved in the civil rights movement and he leads the civil rights movement i think people have got to understand that it was one of these civil rights marches that the british attacked that was the uh, incident for bloody sunday and the reaction to that was the beginning of of uh, of the provisional ira and and then the violence the retaliation and even still hume stuck to his stance of non violence and that was huge absolutely that really was the bottom line for him um you know and he was really clever and passionate about putting those arguments across um, as you mentioned yes it was in fact the um the march on mcgilligan strand um right. when the army began firing rubber bullets indiscriminately into the crowd you know and you, we can look back at those images now and you know it's it's john walking up to um you know the, mm. the parachute regiment yes. and kind of facing them down. You know, he's standing there. He doesn't have an, a weapon to his name, you know, but he's, he's using his intellect and his great way of negotiation, even in the face of, of arms right there in front of him. Um, so those images really led to him becoming such a, a heroic figure for the people at that time. Um, mm. There were all kinds of things going on back here in Belfast where I was growing up as a child. Um, you know, people being burned out of their homes, which is what happened to my grandparents and others, um, uh, kind of like an ethnic cleansing that was going on. Um, you know, people losing jobs or not being able to get jobs. People were literally desperate. Mm. Um, and into the fray and on these images on television comes um, John. He really was a godlike figure. Mm. Um, I actually had quite a crush on him, I think, as a child. I was child. going to say, he was, he, was quite the, he was quite the charming individual because he did have the abilities of empathy, he had humour, and um, but he was a handsome chap. He looked good on camera as well. He was indeed. He was. He was very <laughs> enigmatic. Um, yeah, and uh, that really came across, you know. Um, Can you speak, sorry, a little bit to the kind of when you were talking about the things that happened, for example, to your grandparents, like being burnt out of the houses and being treated like that by the... The British Army, how that affects the, the, the generation. That's one thing, again, I go back to growing up down the south. And I have a relationship with the north and my grandparents being there and going there growing up, but I didn't live there. And I, I, I don't uh, understand, certainly people down south, I don't think fully can grasp or understand how that affects the generations after. And um, so something like that happens to your grandparents, how that will affect a grandchild. Yeah, it 
really does. It never goes away in a family. You know, my mother still talks about it, as did my grandparents right up until the day that they, they passed away, you know, um, because these were people who were coming from a position of nothing, mm. trying to build something, and then over to this position of nothing. Um, you know, my grandfather also was one of, um, he was a Catholic worker in the shipyard. He would have walked over there every day, working in a very kind of sectarian uh, atmosphere in there mm. and then returning home and trying to build this home life with children and then um it was really the it was there sadly the neighbors um on the shankle road as you know the falls and shankle is a very yes. kind of uh, much talked about um but symbolic symbolic of a much wider problem um so it it really was the neighbors are the protestants who burned the catholic site they didn't really want to live in in such proximity mm. we still live with some of the legacies of that in belfast where we still have peace walls that keep people apart um, in these ways, although, although I have to say things are a lot better. But I guess it was more than taking, like I said before, it was more, you know, when internment took your life in that way, burning your home takes your life in another way. Of course. Um, it really did leave the people feeling helpless, hopeless, fearful, backs against the wall, and then also unable to see any other way out of this other than through violence and um, retaliation, which is where John Hume came in to play such a massive part in, um, in trying to teach, teach us all that re that really wasn't the answer and wasn't the way, although it took a long time um, for him to do that. He persevered um, and he got there, you know, because he was a, as I've mentioned before, a great intellect, an intelligent man. You know, he was <clears throat> very well educated. Mm. Um, I had to laugh when I came across uh, lots of um, information about him studying French and being a fluent French speaker. Oh, was um, he? Wow. Yeah, he was absolutely fluent in French, um, which led unionist politicians to deeply mistrust him. Really? You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah, you've got a mistrust a man who knows his food and his wine and can speak uh, <laughs> another language, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's kind of part of the unionist psyche at that time. It was so entrenched um, and fearful of, funnily enough, anything that was going to come out of Europe, you know, right. that, that's where Hume was trying to lead us, was, was to this more European mindset. Yes, um, because, because anything European was a threat to breaking the union, I assume. Is yeah, is yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose, yeah. Um, you've asked me to talk about what it was, what it was like living here. Well, I mean, there are very, there are lots of dark stories. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Would prefer to keep it positive and about. Um, yes. About where we are now, because I actually find those places difficult to go to. Of course. As do my parents. You know, I mean, I can remember. I mean, my own father was, was lifted and taken to a very famous Castlereagh holding center. Yeah. Stories that he's only really beginning to be able to tell me now. Mm. You know, so, and I know there are lots of families in similar situations. Um, you know, and, and I mean, I haven't even really uh, lost anyone um, to violence per se, but, you know, it's always, it's, and in every family, Protestant or Catholic, I mean, and we're so, we're, we're, so connected more than we are divided, which is also the great thing that Hume was able to see. Yes. Um, was that 
that these things, these atrocities were laying waste to all our lives, not, mm. not lives on one side or another, you know. Mm. Um, but that's very true. You've already painted a picture there straight away of, of like, it's, it's in your voice of how the, the things that have happened generations ago, how they still affect the wound, the soul on, on such a, a level now today. And, and, Hume, and Hume was, again, I say in awe, like I've not, I've been completely anti-violence because the amount of times that I've read it and, you know, seen the history or watched the documentaries on and gone, if I was a young man in those times, how would I not have joined the IRA? Do you know what I mean? I, I, I understand the anger. I'm not saying that, that, that it was right at all, but for him to even in that moment, having gone through all the stuff that he'd also gone through as well, to still say that, that we have to be empathetic. And he was so empathetic to, to the people on the other side. Um, he was amazing, amazing. Yeah, you mentioned his talking to the IRA or sleeping with the enemy, as I like to call yes. it. Um, <laughs> so that was hugely controversial at the time. We move on into, into the 80s when nobody was talking to Sinn Féin or the IRA at that time. Either Jerry Adams' voice was, was voiced by an, an actor any time he was on uh, television. And uh, because the IRA were the ones responsible yeah, for a lot of would, the violence. You would remember that. Yeah, that was um, so really Hume had begun these secret talks with mm. Adams in the early 1980s. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, after one of their meetings failed, John was bundled into a car by the IRA and held for several days. I didn't know um, that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't know much about this either until I started looking into it before our, our chat today. But. You know, at some point, the IRA considered killing him, blaming it on loyalists. Um, but still, he he hung in there, you know, and that's the mm. thing I'm talking about, about how years later that something like that comes back to, to revisit you. And, I mean, they were like body blows he was taking all the time, you know. Absolutely. One of the things that he said, um, to kind of back, yes, of course, he was being heavily criticised by um, his own party. Mm -hmm. which was deeply hurtful, I imagine, by the Southern press. Um, you know, he, he really was vilified um, I for saw... that at the time because the ceasefire hadn't yet been achieved, you yes. see. So everybody saw him as, as negotiating with, with the terrorists. You know, mm. no one had the long vision, really, that he, he obviously had deep, deep in his head somewhere, you know. He really was um, on his own in, said, in, in his belief of that. Because, as you said, again, I don't think people realize, and I, it only kind of came, it started coming out again more publicly in, in, in the, the last couple of days, as opposed to when Huma passed straight away, how bad the press in, in down south in Dublin, the Sunday Independent in particular, really were vicious in their attack of him because he was going to negotiate with Jerry Adams. It was vicious. So he was on his own. It was. He was. He was on his own, you know. But he really believed, and he said that too many lives have already been lost in the pursuit of political goals. Mm. Bloodshed for political change prevents the only change that truly matters—that of the human heart. Mm. You know, those were his words. Yeah. So he could see really clearly, and and in a way, when I think about it now, when I'm doing all this reading or I'm writing about the North, whatever, he was, he was so ahead. But it was almost such a simple thing he was saying. Yes. You know, when you look at it, it's really simple. Like, yes. you know, we're not going to achieve anything carrying on like this with all this slaughter, you know. Let's let's really look at, you know, and yes, let's sit down with the terrorists. I mean, in, in that way, he really was a game changer. And 
you know, he'd left a template behind that that's being used internationally. The Protestant people regard themselves as British. And they're called unionists because union with Britain is their political policy. And the Catholic people are called nationalists because they wish to be Irish and they wish Ireland to be one country. So the quarrel is about identity and not about religion. And when you look at the Protestant or the unionist mindset, being in Northern Ireland, they wish to, and they rightly wish, and their objective is totally correct. They wish to protect and preserve their identity and their ethos. And they're totally correct in that, in my opinion, because every society is richer for its diversity, and communities are entitled to their culture and their identity. What was wrong in the past was their methodology, and that was a challenge, that the way to protect themselves was to hold all power in their own hands and exclude anybody who wasn't one of them. That led to widespread discrimination in housing, in jobs, and in voting rights. The challenge to that mindset was, look, that's bound to lead to conflict. So, but the real way to protect your identity is that because of your geography and your numbers, the problem can't be solved without you. Therefore, come to a table and reach an agreement that will protect your identity forever. That's what they did under the leadership of David. And then, of course, there was the nationalist mindset, the community from which I come which I have called a territorial mindset. Ireland is our land. You unionists are a minority, so you can't stop us uniting. My challenge to that mindset was, hold on a minute. It's people that have rights, not territory. Without people, even Ireland is only a jungle. And when people are divided, they can only be brought together by agreement. And they certainly can't be brought together by guns and bombs. He was committed to it, you know, it mm. was his mantra. And yes, lots of people made fun of him for it almost. Mm. Um, but he really didn't care what anybody else thought about him or what he was doing. You know, he knew what he was doing um, and he had to lead the way. You know, and that was so brave. When I, you know, when I, when I think of it now, when I, when I look back and when I read about him, when I watch the footage... Of course, then, having been engaged in those talks and having begun all through the 1980s, as it turns out, secretly with Jerry Adams, and then having in, begun publicly to, to have that dialogue, um, he was, and the country was, dealt the devastating blows of the Shankill bomb mm-hmm. in the fish shop, That's which right. very sadly killed 10 people, including the bomber. And then Adams was seen to carry the bomber's coffin, which right. really was like a hammer, a hammer blow to, to Hume. And this was at, at the same time, time that, 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 that Hume was going. Did the public know that he was having these discussions at that time? Yeah, the, they did. The, the right. talks were then the talks were then public. Yeah. Right. Um, so there was the Shankel bomb, and then straight after that, loyalist reprisal was the Greysteel massacre, yes. which is known as the Trick or Treat. Yeah. So it was probably more horrific than anything that Halloween could ever deliver up, where there were eight, eight people were killed and injured. Two of those people were Protestants. You know, and then Hume was seen at the funeral, one of the funerals of one of the victims of Greysteel um, on television and a, a member of the, one of the families of the victims approached him and was urging him not to give up, you know. Yes. And he broke down in tears mm. and he wept, you know, like a human being would. Yeah, it's a, it's a great... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So it's a great, it's a great piece of footage to really show how you can see that he's caught up. He's heartbroken. Uh, am I doing the right thing in doing these talks with these guys? And for the woman, uh, the relation of the victim to say to him, keep doing what you're doing. He, he did break down. It's amazing footage. Yeah, you know, and yeah, I guess those are the, those are the body blows that definitely came to, mm. to tell a story um, when he became older and, you know, had, had soaked up so much, um, literally soaked up so much of the violence on behalf of the country that he was representing and that he loved so much, you know, mm. um, that, you know, that, that really began to take its, its toll on him. Um, I suppose I want to mention there then um, his his wife, obviously Pat. Yes, yeah, what a woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's incredible. They met at university, um, and um, you know we're in this era where we talk about you know strong women and women are to the fore, which is all wonderful. Obviously, I am one. In case you hadn't noticed, I absolutely. Um, That's why I called you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, she was like in that era of women who were like, I like to think that like they were me too way before anyone ever said me yeah. too. You know, these were um, strong. She was a strong, educated, interested and interesting human being. Um, she became obviously crucial to John's success from the moment she met him and, and heard him give his first orations as, as students. Um, they went on to have five children. Now, I have five children, okay? So I have five children, but I just about hold down a job and cook the dinner. But this woman had, you know, five children. She was strong, obviously such an edifying influence on her husband. You know, she was his friend and confident politically and mm. personally. Um, so while he was rising through the political ranks and through all this difficulty, um, she was there administrating, being his wife, being the mother to the family, holding down a teaching job. To support oh my them God. Often. I didn't realize she was yeah. working as well. Oh my God. You know, yeah, you know, so, I mean, you know, so there, there was a lot of kind of women like that um, quietly in the background in the north, you know, Maraid McGuire, Betty Williams, the peace people, Bernadette Devlin, um, Breach Rogers, you know, all of these incredibly strong women behind these movements and behind these men who helped to deliver change. Um, mm. And again, for me, that's just like, you know, okay, so you've got your family life going on, you know, yes. you know, when do you, when do you sit down or, you know, and I know that Pat was often instrumental in having to take the children away to places of safety. Cause obviously, right. as I alluded to John being um, in talks with the IRA or even under threat from, from loyalists on the other side, mm -hmm. um, you know, and just that, that idea of having to, bundle everybody in the car and off you go to a place where you know everyone will be safe and you know so yeah I would just like to tip my cap and uh, offer condolences obviously to to oh, Pat dear. who's lost her he's lost her great love and her friend I know and not to mention the fact that unfortunately when he got well and he left public life in 2004 that she cared for him as well all those years afterwards as well yeah she did yeah right up until um Recently, which was very sad when obviously they couldn't get in to see him because he was in in a care home. Um, mm. But but they did get to, they get to, they got to be with him in the last few days before he passed on, which I'm sure was hugely important to them. Um, the the word that yeah, kind so, of kind of comes through in in my head as we're speaking is like a man of um, he really did 
and the more I'm speaking to you, I really, and the more I've been reading in the papers and stuff, he really did sacrifice himself for this cause because eventually, like he was, eventually those talks with Jerry Adams and with the IRA brought us to the Good Friday Agreement. It took us a lot. It took a long time. There's peace, um, but in some ways, it was even at the detriment to himself and his own party. In some ways, because the SDLP kind of lost out in a sense in in, in the end because Sinn Féin came to the fore of the of the the assembly then eventually didn't he yeah well yes that's true in some ways but I guess he saw that he had to he had to give up one thing in order to make the other happen yes. you know in fact I was reading even when um, Mandela said to him you know that he'd let Sinn Féin move ahead of the SDLP he said to Mandela well, was, I'm paraphrasing here. Yes, but lives were saved. Yes, you know. Exactly. So, you know, um, I guess he was, in some ways, um, very single-minded about about that, and I suppose may have faced some criticism from from within his own party um, for being kind of the guy who would have hogged the ball a bit to use okay. a, a football analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he would have been seen to be hogging the ball and going his own way, but still um, his team and the party, the SDLP, always did end up failing for him, mm. you know, because they knew, um, I guess they knew um, somewhere, well, you could see it was obvious that he knew what he was doing and he knew where mm. he was going and it really was the only the only track to be on. Mm. Um, you know, he he talked very much about Ireland not being a romantic dream, you know, that it, it wasn't a flag. It's 4.5 million divided into two powerful traditions, you know, and, and you could see that a, a solution will not be found in victory for one side over the other, but on the basis of agreement and a partnership between both. Like I said earlier, when I read those words of his, mm. it seems, it seems kind of obvious. You're yeah. kind of going, yeah, well, hell, why didn't somebody see all this yes. before? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah it's yeah. like, you know, we've been literally going through this since partition, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, he really was um, a one-off who, who came just when we needed him. But to be able um, to say that in those times that were so full of, like, anger from both sides and was so, oh, it was on fire, basically. And um, to be able to keep that, that was the calm, steady message that needed to be, to be said for decades from him. Yeah, indeed it was. Um, and even right up to talking about Bloody Sunday, that dreadful day um, on the 30th of January in 1972. So it was the week before when Hume had been on the march at McGilligan Strand. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, he, he saw the rising tensions on the streets of Derry, the streets of Belfast, other places in the north. And he could sense, obviously, what was coming. Um, and he did plead with the um, Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association not to carry on with the march on that day, on mm. Bloody Sunday. But the march, as we all know now, sadly, tragically mm. went ahead. Mm. And Hume stayed at home. He didn't attend. You know, so obviously he was, you know, he was a visionary in many senses, you know, that he could see that and, and but was powerless to stop, to stop it happening. Um, that just must have hurt him so much. It was so sad. I um, can't imagine what that was like. Yeah, because again, I only I only 
saw that in the last week that he he knew he he tried to get them to stop the civil rights march because he knew something bad was going to go happen. It must have been an absolute tragedy for him knowing that something was going to happen like that. Yeah, indeed. You know, and and still after after the events on that tragic day, he you know attended funerals. Um, I know now in the aftermath, I'm reading one of the the brothers of one of the victims writing about John Hume liaising with the families and um actually paying for funerals that people couldn't afford you know right. he, he handed over money um obviously that great uh egalitarian in him you know and that kind of uh humanity mm. um at the center of him um and then obviously throughout the the savile inquiry um you know he was he was key um you know, he he was fe- uh, fearless in mm. kind of standing up at the Savile Inquiry and saying saying things like they were, and you know, even up to the point of naming McGuinness as being an active IRA member in the city at that time. Right. Wow. Um, you know, yeah. So always putting his neck on the line, and yeah. but just saying things like they were because he, you know, he was a bit of a one man truth commission. You know, he yes. he just wanted the truth to come out uh, and um. And could see that if that if that was the way that we were all going forward, that things would definitely get better, you know. Mm. Um, but you know, he, he loved that city of his so much. That's that's something that really comes across. I mean, from his early days, as you mentioned, he set up the credit union. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think it was the first um, credit union in the country, as far as I'm aware. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in a beautiful moment of serendipity, then I'm. When he was first invited to meet Ted Kennedy in Frankfurt, um, which began his very clever, long relationship with the Americans. So clever. Um, he, but he didn't have any money so, to, to go. So he borrowed the money from the credit union to take the flight to Frankfurt and pay for his hotel, etc. Brilliant. Which I just thought was <laughs> yeah, really sweet when I read that. I was like... As the story began, I was hoping, oh, please let it be that he borrowed the money from the credit union. And yes, it, you yes. Know, it was true. Brilliant. Um, so, you know, yeah, a man um, <clears throat> ahead of the game, you know. So and that was one of the really then, smart, charming things that he went ahead with was he managed to bring U.S. politicians into the Northern Irish uh, situation and uh, not only get them to to get Thatcher to budge on, on the Anglo-Irish agreement and stuff like that, but he also brought jobs, he brought employment through having good relationships with the Americans. Exactly, yeah. The relationship began with Ted Kennedy, you know, and then it was really that relationship with Kennedy and obviously the charm of John and Pat mm. Hume, which allowed those doors to open when it came to President Clinton, who mm. was obviously he in awarding um, the visa to Jerry Adams. Yes. Um, to allow him into the US and then to begin the negotiations um, that would lead to the good friday agreement mm. um you know he really was he was really thinking ahead and and uh there are some of the stories about him in america that are um just heartwarming you know they saw him as like i think i read someone saying he, he was almost like the 101st member of the senate <laughs> you know yeah he was obviously very good at charming everyone but also he was he was real you know yeah there was there was not just um political dinners for the sake of them whatever no not at all he, he, he was there for a reason 
Yeah, and apparently he was a very good listener at dinner parties, which I don't know if you're a bit like me and you hate dinner parties, but you rarely find anyone who actually listens to anyone else. Yeah, everyone yeah, talks over the top of everyone. But he was very smart. I love all the stories of him bringing American politicians. I think it was Ted Kennedy that he brought over and that John had found out exactly where Kennedy's family were from and brought them to the, the cottage in Donegal that they had emigrated from. You know, such a, a lovely touch to do, but very... But smart as well, you know, is it kind of like to yeah, really connect with them? Yeah, smart, but also kind of really authentic. Exactly. You know, he, he knew how to, to go after what was at people's hearts, you mm. know, and to kind of play that to his advantage in a way. But, mm. you know, he was he knew he was doing something that was um, meaningful mm. um, and, like I said, authentic. Um yeah, he, so, you know, he brought like, yeah, he brought Ted Kennedy, he brought Kofi Annan to Derry. That's right. Um, you know, so um, he brought, you know, all kind of great world leaders and and also more than, he brought jobs into the city as well, which yes. is crucial. You know, mm. he, he went to the US and he negotiated with the likes of Seagate, the big technology company. That's right, yeah. Um, which then brought lots of jobs into a city that really needed them. Um, you know, the Northwest had long been... Uh, kind of almost forgotten and hived off from um, from kind of the economics of the North and, and the South and the UK. Um, so he could see the great need for jobs in the city um, and that you can't really speak to people politi politically on mm. empty stomachs, you know. So yes. he was astute in that way. Um, yeah, he was... Um, yeah, yeah, obviously developed a relationship with Clinton and then brought the Clintons into the city as well and that very famous uh, footage that we've all seen. And was it true that he was a big Derry, a Derry City football club fan as well? Well, these are the stories that I love. Um, <laughs> so, uh, his Mark Durkin, who was the SDLP leader and a, a colleague and friend of John's, um, he said that during his career he described John as during his career he was capable of having Paul Gascoigne-esque moments of brilliance <laughs> yeah which I really love brilliant um yeah he was in fact uh, a lifetime supporter and lover of Derry City Football Club um he was the club president uh for a few years um and I do know that when the team fell into financial difficulties in 2003 he used his um, European Union contacts to bring some of the biggest names in football to the Brandywell in Derry. So Ronaldinho wow. made his debut for Barcelona in Derry. What? Wow, that is <laughs> yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Uh, on a included uh, Clivert and Overmars and Iniesta of Spain. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah, that was a great day for the city. Even though Barcelona beat them 5-0, I don't really think anybody Doesn't matter. Really cared what the score Ronaldinho was. Ronaldinho was in Derry. Like, that's just amazing. Just to wrap it up, it's a, a lovely way to end it. But like some of the awards that he's gotten as well, the, the, he's the only person to hold the Martin Luther King Peace Award, the International Gandhi Peace Prize, and the Nobel Peace Prize at the same time. He's, we, that's partly why I wanted to talk to you about him. We are talking a, a man in uh, one of the greatest in Irish history. We are indeed. Um, we are indeed, you know, um, up there with Parnell and O'Connell and, uh, you know, really up there with all the great political names that we can think of. Um, mm. But also so much a man of the people. Um, 
you know, some of the stories that I came across that I loved um, more than any of the political stories, which are all well documented. But things like in recent years, um, if he was seen in the roads of the town um, and he was um, out and obviously not very well and suffering from dementia, as his wife has alluded to, um, you know, people would find him and bring him back home. Yeah. Um, so nice. Traffic on the Strand Road in the city, which is a very busy road in Derry, um, traffic would stop to let him pass, whether he was at lights or not. Yeah. Um, he could always get you an after-hours drink in the city, <laughs> anywhere at all. Yeah, wow. so I guess he's a good man to know that way. Absolutely. Um, he liked a wee Bailey's, and he once thought that Guinness, uh, he once said that Guinness should start doing it in pints. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there are all, all these great... Uh, a great character as well. A great character, yeah. Just a real all-rounder. And um, if anyone would like to sign the digital book of condolences, it is available on the Derry Straban um, City Council website. I'll get, I'll get the link to that and I'll put it in the description to this podcast because that, that'd yeah. be great. I'd love to sign up myself. Um, listen, Jude, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, thank you for... And, and rest in peace, John Hume. Absolutely. Rest in peace. There'll never be his like again. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.